good evening. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And when you find it, please stand as we read together. And we will read from verse 28 to verse 30. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Lord, I cannot do justice to this passage of Scripture, but we ask you, Lord, that you would even just help us to understand a little bit of it. (coughs) We pray that you would be glorified in this message, that you would open our eyes to see the goodness of your grace, and Lord, that you would even preach to me as I preach to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. may be seated. Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans is the high point, we could say, of the Bible. And the book, the chapter 8 that we're in here, uh, according to J.I. Packer, is the high point of the book of Romans. Here we have in the book of Romans the, the, the glory of the life in the Spirit. Romans has talked about sin at first and judgment and then justification by faith, how we're right with God, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done, trusting only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans talks about union with Christ, how we're one with Christ, even as we were one with Adam. Nate preached on that some weeks ago and how we're one with Christ by united by faith and by the Spirit. It talks about sin in chapter 6 and how we're, the power of sin is broken. We are now slaves to God. Chapter 7 talks about the law and how our relationship with the law is not the same now that we are born again, now that we have the Spirit, that we have, uh, we still see the righteousness of the law, but we're not married to the law, we're married to Christ to bring forth fruit to God. But then we still have that that conflict within us of the flesh and the spirit, the flesh desiring the things of the flesh and the spirit desiring the things of the word of God, the, the, the pure and holy law of Christ, the law of God. And then we see Romans chapter 8 entering in there and how that glorious statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Talking, Romans 8 is about life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, the resurrection life of Christ within us, giving us power, enabling us to mortify the deeds of the body. It's not about totally being sin-free in this life. I was influenced by some teaching that said, well, you can get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 where you're just on the clouds, basically. (laughs) But that's not the scriptural teaching. The scriptural teaching is, yes, Romans 8 is the glory of the Spirit life, but it's not, we're not there yet. We're not in glory with Christ yet. There are still struggles, and we're looking at that today. Romans 8 talks about being led by the Spirit in a life of holiness. He talks about that in 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's not just, God led me to do this. No, He leads us by His Word in a life of holiness to do what He wants us to do. 
Then we, you see the spirit of adoption that is within us, that cries within us, Abba, Father. Amen. Daddy, Father. Confirming, bearing witness in our spirit that we are the children of God. And then verse 17 brings up a new concept in, verse, in Romans chapter 8. And it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The concept of suffering has not yet, I don't believe, been brought up in the book of in the chapter Romans chapter eight, up to that verse. Probably in the in the early part of the book it was. But here in Romans eight he brings up this concept of suffering. If we suffer How does suffering fit in with this life in the Spirit, this glorious life in the Spirit? You know, some people say if you're a true Christian filled with the Spirit, you're not going to suffer. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says. How does suffering fit in with this great salvation he has been expounding from chapter 1? Can suffering undo God's great design? That's what he's going to look at in the, in the book of Romans, in the end cha- of the chapter. Can suffering, death, disease, disappointment, decay, all of these things, can it, can it destroy what God has already started from Romans 1 to 8? Well, then he says, Verse 17, if we're going to be glorified with Christ, we must suffer with him. It is a necessity and a non-negotiable factor in the believer's life. Absolutely essential. If we suffer with him, then we will be glorified together. We will be joint heirs with Christ. We are if we suffer with him. Like the song that someone picked tonight, Take Up Thy Cross. Amen. Then he says in verse 18, I reckon, using this calculating, accounting word, I reckon, I consider, I account that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul's doing the spiritual bookkeeping, and as he looks at the sufferings of this present time, He compares it to the glory of eternity, to the glory that's going to be revealed for the the believer. And he says, this present pain is insignificant compared to the future glory that the believer is going to experience. This is a key verse on suffering in this passage and in the scriptures. Very similar verses in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, where Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You you ask Paul, how is your light affliction? You were in the shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and beaten with rods and all sorts of things and perils in the night, perils by your countrymen. And he just lists all his troubles and he says, Our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice Paul, he's focused on what really matters. And what really matters is that glory, not the suffering. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. Very similar to what Paul says here in verse 18. He's saying, I consider, I reckon, as I calculate the impact or the importance of the sufferings of this present time and compare it in weight and worthiness to the glory which shall be revealed, I see that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Then he brings up a new idea in Romans 8. 19. And the new idea is the creation. The creation around us is also waiting for 
the manifestation of the sons of God. And so he's talking about the creation around us, how we are suffering, but also the creation around us is impacted by suffering as well. The creation around us, because of the fall, because of the curse, which brought thorns, we know, and thistles brought pain, death, disease, decay, and corruption. The, the world around us is crying. The world around us is in pain. The world around us is groaning. He uses the word groaning. And it's in a bondage of corruption. He's not talking about people He's talking about creation. He's talking about the world around us, and he's saying it's going through this this bondage of corruption, an experience of decay and, and dismal desolation. But it's expectantly looking forward to the deliverance of the sons of God. It's looking forward to the resurrection when we will experience those new bodies, when we will have those new bodies, and we will be in that new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. The new heavens and new earth is part of God's redemption plan. It's part of His deliverance plan. And God is going to do it. He's planned to do it. And not only us will share in that in that glorious redemption, we could say, but even the creation also. So he says in verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So the creation is groaning. The creation is, is looking forward to that deliverance, but also we are groaning and looking forward to that deliverance. We are going through those birth pangs. We are longing and and looking forward to that deliverance, that adoption, to wit the redemption of our body. We're looking forward to the resurrection and the glorification. We could say the entire sanctification, though Christ is working that sanctification in us now. We, We are not content with where we are now, in a sense. Because we are looking for that full and final salvation. We are saved by hope. Hope is not something that's, that we see yet. In verse 24, We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So the creation will share in the promised restoration of the people of God. And we also are looking forward to that restoration, to that resurrection. We groan in ourselves because of sin. We groan because of corruption. We groan because of our weakness, because of our physical weaknesses, because of our pains, because of our lack of faith, lack of love, lack of zeal. Lack of communion with God. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we want more. Amen. We want our bodies to share in this glorious redemption. And we want to be fully sanctified and fully glorified. Amen. And so, we have not yet received all, but we've received the down payment. Hope is something you have not received yet. You're still waiting for it. We're waiting for that new body. We join with the creation around us, not with the sinful people around us, but with the creation around us, eagerly waiting for the new heavens and new earth and for the resurrection. And we wait for it with perseverance and or with patience in verse 25. So how is this life in the Spirit connected So he's talked about the life in the Spirit. Then he kind of goes and talks about suffering. And so how is that life in the Spirit connected to that life of suffering? And he brings the two together in verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We have weaknesses. And in this suffering, 
we have these weaknesses and we, we don't know how to pray like we should. We don't know what to pray for or how to do it. But the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And these groanings are not groanings of the Spirit, but groanings of us as He intercedes through us, prays through us, enables us to make these groanings to God. Christ's intercession is an intercession outside of us. He is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. We have nothing, we don't have anything to do with that except to receive the benefit of it. But the Spirit's intercession is within us, and the Spirit's intercession is enabling us to cry out. And He enables us to cry out with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes we don't even know what what exactly to say. Unutterable, unspeakable desires, longings, and burdens of our hearts can be expressed as the Spirit gives us those desires, that faith, that love, that submission to God's, God's authority and God's will. And He teaches us. He puts them in there. We can't fully and sometimes can't really express what our hearts are really going through, but God knows. And He has put those desires and longings inside us by His Holy Spirit. This is a very precious thing. And it says in verse 27, He that searcheth the hearts, that's God. He knows what is the mind of the Spirit because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This intercession of of the Spirit within us, it's not that we're inspired and we're saying, you know, um, inspired statements, but it's that He is leading us in prayer and leading us to pray, and God knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because it's His mind. God's mind and the mind of the Spirit, not two different minds. And He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God that we have the intercession of Christ and the intercession of the Spirit. So it's in this context of these passages on suffering and the life in the Spirit and the Spirit's work within us to help us in the midst of suffering in a broken and corrupted world that we read this verse and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I wanted you to see the context. It's important to understand where we're at in the Scriptures And this verse is quoted many times by Christians, especially when going through times of trial. And it's a good verse to quote. Do we really understand it? Sometimes people simply mean, it won't always be bad, it's going to get better. When they quote this verse, that's basically what they're meaning, you know. All things work together for good, it's not always going to be bad, it'll be better in the end, you know. That's kind of a okay, but... There's so much more to it. We need to grasp this truth for our lives today. So let's dig in to Romans 8, 28. Paul says, and we know. We know. Paul says, we know. Paul loves to say that he knows things. And not only that, he wants you to know things. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 3, know ye not. He says in Romans 6, verse 9, I mean verse 6, knowing this, verse 9, knowing that. Verse 16, know ye not. Paul knows that the importance of knowing. He's not trying to just show off his knowledge here, but he's showing the importance of doctrine, of truth, and of the facts, that we must know the facts. And if we grasp hold of the facts, and we believe the facts, the facts will change our lives. Paul says we know. Paul does not say we see, but he says we know. Sometimes it seems opposite to what we see. 
it doesn't always, we don't always see all things working together for good, but we know. He doesn't say we feel. Sometimes we feel the opposite. We feel like things are not working out together for good. We things, feel like things are, are, are all coming in and crashing in upon us, but we know that all things work together for good. He doesn't say we think that all things work together for good. Or we imagine it, or we hope so, but he says we know it. Because Paul has this certainty, a confident hope, an expectation that this is going to happen. And not only that, it is happening right now. All things are working together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. We need to embrace this truth. Paul reminds us of this fact and this knowledge because it is so easy to forget it in the midst of the suffering and pain of this life. Notice Paul says all things. Not some things and not most things, not just the pleasant things, but even those things that we don't really like. What has been Paul been talking about? He's been talking about sufferings and trials. He's been talking about the bondage of corruption. He's been talking about pain. He's been talking about things that we don't like to talk about or we don't like to experience. The sufferings of this present time. The groaning within ourselves. He's been talking about our infirmities. And now he says, all things work together for good. I believe that the all things specifically refers to these kind of things. Of course, it includes the good things as well, but I think Paul is emphasizing the, the hard things. Paul is, is, he wouldn't really have anything to need to say about you know, the good things of life working out for good, but he's talking about the hard things of life, things that keep us up in the night, pain, our worst fears, loss of a loved one, terminal illness, loss of job, sickness, cancer, mold in your home, your children or your wife sick or suffering, all the losses and crosses of this life. Paul says they all work together for good. What does he mean, work together for good? Paul is not saying that these things are in themselves essentially good. He is not denying the reality that some things are not good in themselves. There are things that are not good. Pain is not good in itself. Right? Suffering is not good in itself. Hardship is not good in itself. Death is not good in itself. Those are bad things. We are not calling good evil and evil good. We're not like the Christian scientist who says, I am healthy when he's burning with a fever. We're not denying reality. They are part of the curse and part of the fall. But they work together for good. Notice it's not because of something in them in themselves. It's not because of of those those infirmities or I mean sorry those sufferings in themselves but it is by the hand of almighty god these things are part of god's great design in his sovereignty he has determined to allow these things and to bring them into our lives to make us like jesus there's no accident that's what romans 8:28 is telling us there's no accident in this world Everything is planned by God for our good. So what does he mean when he says for good? All things work together for good. Well, some teach today that if we have enough faith and we, you know, walk with God enough that we'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And that's kind of the way the world sees good. 
having a fat bank account, having the comfort that they desire, the pleasure, getting the things I want for Christmas or any other time I want it. That is the good that the world seeks after. That that's not the good that he's talking about in Romans 8.28. He says, for good, and he's talking about eternal good. He's talking about spiritual good. He's talking about that glory that shall be revealed in us, ultimately. He's talking about what he defines as that good in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The, the good there is being conformed to Christ, being like him and bringing glory to him that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the good. It's God's glory in our lives. It's our sanctification and eventual glorification. It's that glory that shall be revealed in us. It's the things that are not seen that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We look at the things that are not seen. So we see that God's sovereignty and providence is in control of all things for the believer's good. Did you know there's a Romans 8.28 in the Old Testament? There is. It's in the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Joseph had been addressed by his brothers because they were afraid of him after his father died and they were afraid that he would uh, revenge of what, he, what they had done to him. And so they came to him and asked him for forgiveness and so he responds in verse 19, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. God, you meant evil. These are the, the, the bad things, but God meant it unto good. This is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Or we could say this is this is the same truth found in the Old Testament. God meant it for good. And we can look back in our lives, we may not see it today, but we'll be able to look back and say they meant evil, but God meant it for good. Maybe not a particular person, but an experience. Maybe the devil meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Maybe the experience seemed to be evil to me, but God meant it for good. Who, do, who does he say this experience is for? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Sometimes we quote this verse in a wrong way. We'll try to comfort somebody, and maybe they're not a believer, or they're not professing to be believers, or you're not sure if they're a believer, so you just say, well, you know, everything's going to work together for good. Well, that's not a good application of this verse. Why? Everything doesn't work out for good for everybody. It doesn't. And it's dangerous to quote it indiscriminately. It only is for them that love God. A true Christian loves his Father, even when it hurts. Even though he may be using the rod. We love him because he first loved us. You say, well, my, my love isn't very big. Maybe your love is small, cold, and weak. But do you love God's word? Do you love God's people? Do you love God's house? Do you love holiness? These are signs that you love God. Your love 
may be small and weak, but he says that a smoking flax he will not quench. He is patient and merciful as he was with Peter. Remember Peter at the after Christ had risen again from the dead and he was there at the side of the sea and there was the fish on the fire and Jesus had provided it for breakfast for them. And Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me, Peter? And Peter remembers his denial of Christ, but he says, Yes, Lord, I love you. He says, Feed my sheep. He, he reminds him again, Peter, do you love me? He says, Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now, People have gone back and forth with the words. Some say the words don't matter. Some say the words do matter. We won't get into that. But the important thing is that Christ was so patient with Peter. He was patient with his weak and feeble love. So God works all things together for good to them that love God. Not because of our great love, but because of his great love for us. But this is a warning as well. There are many who say today, Lord, Lord, I love you. I love the Lord. But they don't really love God. They love sin. They love the world. They love their own ways. They love to wander. All things are not working good for good for them. They may think they are. They may have what heart could wish for. They may have less trials and sufferings than sincere and true believers, but it will all prove vain and empty in the end. All things work together for good only to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The second thing he says is to them who are the called according to His purpose. What does he mean by being called? He's talking about being called by sovereign grace. There are two kinds of callings in in Scripture. First of all, there's that general call or that gospel call. As the preacher preaches the gospel and and, and proclaims the message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was risen again the third day, and he calls men to repentance and faith in Christ. That's the gospel call. And it goes to all men that hear, hear the gospel. But does do all men who are called by the gospel in that way, does all things work together for good for them? Not for all of them. Because some reject the gospel, some refuse to repent and believe, some do not come to the cross in faith and repentance. What makes the difference? The difference is not in upbringing. The difference is not in your eye color. The difference is not in your personality. And the difference is not in your personal decision on its own. The difference comes by the power of the Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's called effectual calling. It's a work of God where God calls the sinner and the sinner has no choice but to come. He comes freely and willingly because the Spirit draws. John 6, the Lord Jesus calls it the Father who has sent me drawing a man. You think of a man pulling in a net, drawing in the fish. Well, that's the father drawing the sinner to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 16 talks about Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. Her heart was hard. It was was closed. It was shut to God. But God opened her heart and he said, come. And she came. He called her. And Scripture talks about being called in other places. Paul talks about called to be saints in 1 Corinthians 1. And there's so many more 
references to calling such a wonderful, wonderful doctrine that God calls people to himself. Not just with the gospel, but also inward, effectually, by his Spirit, calling them to him. Not eliminating the aspect of the human will or the aspect of the human personality, but wooing us and transforming us and giving us a heart to walk in his ways. This is a wonderful thing. But he says they're called according to his purpose. This is a wonderful thing, according to his purpose. The called according to his purpose. God has a wonderful plan. He has a wonderful purpose. And when we go through suffering, a lot of times people will try to say something comforting and they may say, you know, well, God knows what he's doing. And we can't really understand it now, but God knows what he's doing. And that is true, very true. And it's, it's fine to say it. And it's true that in our particular situation and those events, we do not know how they fit in and how they mesh with God's ultimate plan. But we do know and we do understand God's purpose. We understand, in a sense, God has told us what he's doing. He hasn't told us the blueprint of each and every detail, but he has told us his mission statement. He's told us what he's doing. And if we get a hold of that, we'll understand why all things are working together for good. In Ephesians 1.9, he says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. Notice what he says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. He has shown us a mystery, something that he hadn't shown us before, Something that is related to his purpose. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. What is God's purpose? His purpose is to build his church. His purpose is to gather the saints from heaven and from earth the, the, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, it's to gather them all in one in Christ. It's to build that bride, that new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven in, in the book of Revelation. It's, that's his purpose. Is that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So we see here that the purpose of God is in saving a people for his son. The purpose of God is in, in building up the church. The purpose of God is in, in definitely the local church, but we're talking about the, the wider church, all of the people of God, gathering to them to be Christ's bride. That's the purpose of God. He's building his wonderful bride for his son, and it's to the praise of his glory. No, we don't understand everything that God is doing, but we can understand that God has told us his purpose, and we're called according to that purpose. And that purpose is to make us like Christ, to bring us to glory, to behold his glory, and to be with him forever. Jesus talked about this in John 17, that glorious mountaintop passage in the book of John. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. God is getting us ready for our forever home, to be with him in his presence forever. So we can read this and say, well, Paul, you know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But how do you know that? 
What's the basis of your confidence? You know, you're so confident about it, but what's the basis of it? I mean, I know God has a purpose and a plan, but can you elaborate a little bit more? How can you be so sure, Paul, that all things work together for good for us? Well, Paul says, I've got a little more for you in verse 29 and 30. He says, For because whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, he's going to elaborate and unfold that purpose. That purpose of God in, in saving and electing love is going to be unfolded in 29 and 30. And he starts with foreknowledge. He starts with this foreknowledge. In verse 29, Paul looks at this glorious chain of salvation that cannot be broken, that cannot one link cannot be missing, and it starts with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge here does not mean that God knew stuff about us. Of course, God knows everything about us. He knows everything that could ever be known. And He knows all things. But it's saying He foreknew us. He foreknew a people. He knew them. He foreloved them. He set His knowledge, His love upon them. He chose them and He selected them. This can be proved from a couple of verses in the Old Testament, especially in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. This is the foreknowledge of God setting his love upon a people from before eternity past. I mean, from eternity past. Jeremiah 1.5, he says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. There's the idea of foreknowledge. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This is God setting his affection and his choice and his selection upon a person beforehand for a specific reason. For Jeremiah, it was for being a prophet. But for us, it's for salvation. And for Jeremiah, it was salvation as well. The first Link in the chain is foreknowledge. The second link, it, link is predestination. Predestination. This is God's predetermining or pre-planning ahead of time that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. This is His plan, His predetermination, what would happen in our lives for our salvation. Notice God does not try to save anybody. He just saves them. And He has a plan, and His plan is to conform you to the image of His Son if you're His child, to make you like Jesus, to make you holy like Jesus, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants to see the glory of Christ in your life. He wants to purge the dross out of your life. To make you like Jesus. He wants more children like Jesus. He wants a multitude of people following Christ, loving Christ, shining in the image of Christ, and worshiping Christ. So we see this beautiful chain of salvation, starting with foreknowledge, going to predestination, but he doesn't stop there. And then he just kind of spills it all out in verse 30. He says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And that's the calling that we saw in verse 28. The calling of the Spirit, the drawing and the wooing. And whom he called, them he also justified. That's the justified that we see in chapter 4 and chapter 3 and chapter 5, where we trust in the finished work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God declares us righteous on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Right with God on the basis of Christ, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Glorification, speaking 
really of, of the, the adoption, the redemption of our body, speaking of God getting us to the end, God finishing the work, God making us fully conformed to the image of His Son, making us fully like Christ with the new bodies in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. But you say, wait, Paul, didn't you get something wrong? Didn't you say something wrong? You said he also glorified. Shouldn't you say he also will glorify? Because nobody's glorified yet. Nobody. Except Christ. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. Glorification happens at the resurrection. But no, Paul says, I like it in the past tense. Why? Because it's just as well as done in the mind of God. It's a plan that God has. His purpose and His purpose will be completed. It will be accomplished And his purpose is starting with foreknowledge when he sets his love upon us, continuing to predestination when he predetermines that we will be like like his son. And it continues to calling as he puts his spirit and sends his spirit to, to draw the sinner and bring the sinner to conviction and conversion. And then to justification as we are right with God through the merits of Christ alone, and then to glorification with Christ forever. Paul says it's just as well as done. God is committed to seeing you through. He finishes what he starts. This chain cannot be broken. Because of this chain, because God finishes what He starts, He will make sure that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Don't you see that sufferings are not that significant in God's big plan? In the sense that they cannot thwart His plan, they cannot stop His plan, they cannot... They cannot make him go back on his plan to save the soul. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So in application, what are we to do? We are to trust God's good plan. We are to believe what he says and take his word for it. God is not a liar. Cast yourself upon this good word of God. Cast yourself into the hands of God's sovereign and loving providence. He is working for my good. I don't feel it. I don't see it. But I believe it. Because God has told me it. And because of his sovereign, electing, faithful work of salvation, which is sure to see me through to the end, no matter what. Rejoice that all things work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Take joy in the fact that he is in control. That he has your good in view. And praise him for it. This should be an antidote for fear and anxiety in our lives. Knowing this truth and believing it and rejoicing in it should be one of our weapons against the assaults of the devil in our lives. And fourthly, this is what sets Christians apart from the world. All things work for their good. Christians can have peace in the midst of chaos, knowing who is in control and that he has their good in view. We need to think like Christians. We need to know what Paul knows, and we need to let it sink into our minds. 
Can you say, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose? Some of you here cannot say that because you're not trusting in Christ. You have not bowed the knee to Christ. And I encourage you, if that is true in your life, trust, trust. Turn from your sin, repent, and come to Christ. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. Sometime I hope to look at the questions at the end of chapter 8. The questions are the application that Paul gives and that we didn't dig into today. But they dig into the love of Christ. And we could say, maybe they're almost richer than what we looked at tonight. Or just as rich. But we'll see that another time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your good word. It is true. Thank you for the power of it. Father, thank you that it satisfies the longing soul. Lord, that you fill the hungry soul with good things. Father, I pray that you administer to the needs of those who are going through suffering. Lord, that you administer your truth to them. Father, that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would help us to see your good plan. Help us to see, Lord, your wonderful chain of salvation that cannot be broken. Help us to see your wonderful electing love was there before we were born. Help us to see your predestination. Lord, your calling, your justification, and your glorification. Lord, to see it by faith that we would know your plan is perfect and that your work is complete. That we would not trust in ourselves, that we would not be overwhelmed by the sorrows and the afflictions of this world, but they would rest in the hands of our Father who loves us and gave His Son for us. Lord, bless each one. Be merciful to those who do not know you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. You may be dismissed. Amen. Amen.